Incidentally, uh, uh, don't uh, don't back down if anybody takes you on on Hoffa. That was the right thing to do. Well, some people hate it, so it's because of Bobby Kennedy. But Edgar Hoover told me last night that uh, that he Edgar testified the fact that the bureau didn't do the investigating. He said that, there, that the fellow was really railroaded. I, I think he was guilty, understand? But I, there is being guilty and being being railroaded too. Well, good luck, Raj. Fine. Fine. Bye. Welcome back, listeners. This is A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives into history, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad people who secretly make their own history and the history that made them. And you might have noticed that the episode kind of ended a little bit abruptly last time as we said we were going to take a break. Yeah, it's because I was hungry and tired. I may be a podcaster, but I'm also just a human being with needs. And then there was a longer break because my laptop got stolen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Is that, that worse or better than my excuse? It's, it, it, I, I mean, they're both excuses. That's right. That's you right. Know, one, one is about bodily needs, and one's really just about the needs of possession, as well as my access to my own iCloud account. Right. Yeah. But anyways, we're back. And in just a moment here, I'm going to, go right into a clip that we did already record, continuing our coverage of Jimmy Hoffa's trials. Or as Kennedy called them, Hoffer, 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 Hoffer. And we're back. How you holding up, Peter? All right, I'm good, I'm good. We've had some food. Yeah. So, as we mentioned earlier, this test fleet trial in Nashville ends in a hung jury. It's a mistrial. It really just lays the groundwork for the jury tampering trial about tampering with the jury on the test fleet trial. That case is held in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm. The essence of this case is that Hoffa and his money man, his bank, Alan Dorfman, were alleged to have reached out to or attempted to reach out to jurors during that Nashville trial with the intention to bribe them with cash or jobs. And in exchange, those jurors, or really potential jurors, would vote not guilty on the test fleet case. Now, Hoffa maintained that this was an elaborate, perjury driven case in which the government in the form of FBI agents and Walter Sheridan, threatened people to, quote, tell the truth until they said what the government wanted to hear. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said before, the jury here on that on that previous trial was done through the key man system. Mm-hmm. 
where local notables selected people of uh, good reputation, which in Nashville means wealthy old white guys, the, uh, the burgers in Nashville. And Tommy Osborne, Hoffa's attorney, attempted to challenge this unsuccessfully. So the FBI, through the key man system, had actually the names of all the potential jurors and did run investigations on every single potential juror in the Hoffa case, mm-hmm. tipping off the prosecutors and more importantly, tipping off Walter Sheridan as to which ones were not good and not suitable in their view, mm-hmm. which you might think from the outset. Jury tampering on the other side. Is jury tampering. Yeah. Yes. In fact, I would say this entire jury tampering case is ironically jury tampering by the government but they're the government right they're gonna they're gonna do what they want. the chief prosecution witness in this jury tampering case the only one who's able to really connect things up to jimmy hoffa though it's important to talk about now because his name is edward grady part he is and ends up being a spy and he is himself like like a secondary Elroy character, mm-hmm. like a thug yeah, yeah. And, and a slimy guy who gets like blackmailed by a right. bigger Elroy character. And eventually shot with a silenced revolver. Right, exactly. Just blown, right? In his real life, he doesn't end up getting silenced that way, but uh, Tommy Osborne does, weirdly mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was a Louisiana man. Mm-hmm. Life magazine in their kind of like public relations rollout mm-hmm. of... Edward Grady Parton leading up to the Chattanooga jury tampering trial called him a minor offender, saying that he had a little bit of a little bit of a past. Hmm. He was recruited by Walter Sheridan, Kennedy's kind of spook and counter-espionage guy, to be a spy in the Hoffa camp. And Sheridan had significant leverage on Parton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to be clear, and Hoffa liked to tar Parton a lot, like he's a lying, no good guy. But Hoffa is right about this. Like, you know, I wouldn't just take a face value Hoffa's word because being a lying, no good guy isn't like enough to really exclude you from being friends with Jimmy Hoffa. Right. But yeah, Parton was a genuinely bad guy. So Parton has like like a classic, like mid-century gangster resume. He was a prize fighter early on. And in 1943, he burglarized a restaurant with some like dope friend of his and was sentenced, this being hard-ass Louisiana, to a whopping 15 years in Oof. prison. Oof. He broke out of that prison Truly twice. He's a product of society. Yeah. We, 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 yeah, we deserved him. He broke out of that prison twice, uh, but rather than being sentenced for escape, he actually, they were looking for recruits, this being like 44 <laughs> in 45 and in, in world yeah. war ii and uh he instead of uh, going back to prison for escape for probably what would have been a life sentence in louisiana mm-hmm. he took a position in the united states marine corps mm. where he was promptly discharged dishonorably mm. after getting into a fight um, oh they didn't discharge him for being an escaped con just no 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 he, they, he, they, he went in being an escaped con right. they're like we need well, more people like you with the marine corps that. that's, yeah that's all i'm saying True. Okay. No, no, the, the, the judge apparently talked to him about the mm-hmm. possibility of going to Marine Corps recruiter. Okay, okay. Before sentencing. Gotcha. Uh, he was dishonorably discharged and ended up back at his house shortly thereafter and uh, quickly picked up a statutory rape case mm-hmm. of a, a, I think it was like a 15-year-old girl. And he 
it wasn't an acquittal. It was a hung jury on the basis of one white juror who held out on for the reason of it was a black girl. Mm. And so I couldn't trust her. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Moving on into his criminal career, he actually became a, a muscle guy and eventually the head of Baton Rouge, the Baton Rouge local of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters who were organizing in the South at the time. And he was involved in some real skullduggery stuff with the Teamsters. He uh, allegedly, and it seems pretty credible that he did, run gun, ran guns to Castro in 58, which Hoffa liked to harp on in his biographies. I'm like, you didn't really have a problem with that. He might have had it because... If he was involved with the mob, right, that would be the Elroy thesis. Yeah. That because Hoffa was mobbed up and the mob owned all those casinos, that there was probably uh, he thought it would be problematic. Yeah. I just don't see I don't see Hoffa allowing guns to go to Castro, which definitely didn't fit. I mean, this is when Castro like is like coming into Houston, Texas, and dining with the uh, the sheriff's department. Oh, yeah. Okay. This this is good old boy Lincoln right, as right, Castro. Right. All right, gotcha. Yeah. So he's running guns to him back then. Lincolnist, you said. Yeah, at one point, Castro referred to himself as a Lincolnist. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I should have known that. You know what? I don't think he was lying about that. Mm. <laughs> Spicy. In, in, this, in, the same, uh, in the same vein. Parton allegedly has some connections to David Ferry, uh-huh. famous for maybe possibly having some like ancillary role with, in the Kennedy assassination mm-hmm. or running Lee Harvey Oswald or both. I think it's more the running Lee Harvey Oswald part mm-hmm. or running with Lee Harvey Oswald than anything. But uh, it also seems like that might just be like fiction that was produced later on when Oliver Stone fans know him. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison mm-hmm. had his own feud with Walter Sheridan later uh, on in 1967. Why, why wouldn't they? And so to kind of, as uh, part of this, this ongoing war mm-hmm. between Walter Sheridan and Jim Garrison, Walter Sheridan, I'm sorry, Jim Garrison decided to like bring some claims against Sheridan's like favorite stool pigeon, Ed Parton. But to get back to the real stuff on Ed Parton, Ed Parton, really started getting in trouble when he stole a bunch of money out of the union treasury. Mm. No one knows what really what he used it for. Parton stole about 1600 or 16,000, depending on the source that you read of cash union money for his personal use. When he was confronted by two angry union members about just stealing their union treasury, just like their strike fund and stuff. He had them just beaten up by five different like goons mm. so he uh, had his own little he had his own little goon squad yeah 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 in a, it was like in a classic tony pro way mm-hmm. but they then after being beaten uh went to the police and got ed parton investigated by the time the cops in baton rouge got a search warrant for parton's local safe uh it was gone from the union local and had apparently been thrown into a nearby harbor and when it was raised up with a crane, it was found empty. Another one of the union rebels who went up against Parton died of an accident when a, uh, you know, a big crate fell on him. Yeah, as, as happens. Coincidence. It's a dangerous job. Someone's got to do it. Parton also ran into some trouble on a manslaughter case in addition to robbing his union treasury when he was driving through, oddly enough, um, a town in Mississippi where he ran into a car full of United States active duty troops oh wow so he disrespected the troops yeah yeah i'd say it was pretty disrespectful because he yeah. killed them oh all of them i've more than one i believe he killed two of them damn yeah that's a manslaughter case 
And uh, also, while he's waiting trial on the manslaughter case, yeah, a case of kidnapping little kids. Ooh. Um, a not related to him. Not related to him. So yes. a, a member of his local was having like a custody dispute. Okay. And Parton decided that he would help out his friend slash flunky slash goon, who maybe have helped out with you know beating up the uh-huh. union rebels yeah. and so on, uh, by helping him with custody case by mm-hmm. sending some goons over to the mother's house and mm. taking his kids out of there. Mm. Uh, they disappeared for several months. Mm. And then under a kind of armistice agreement with the prosecutor, uh, they were delivered to the basement of a courthouse where they were put back into the mother's okay. custody. Yeah, yikes. So kidnapping, not good. Mm. All three of these cases, and just to recap, we have... Ready, Peter? Um, stealing thousands of dollars out of the Union safe. Mm-hmm. Hitting some troops with your car and killing them. Mm-hmm. And kidnapping little kids. Yeah. All things that I think meet with like widespread approval in America, right? Like yeah, he's, he's gonna he's gonna definitely get acquitted. Yeah, that's cool. So he's facing all three cases while in jail. And at one point he turns to his cellmate and says, I figured out a way to get out of jail. Yeah. Coincidentally, uh, this is when he is suddenly and inexplicably released from jail. Mm. He was never further prosecuted on any of these cases, which I repeat, include kidnapping little kids, killing troops, and stealing money from his own union. I mean, if you've got such a problem with union racketeers. Yeah, I mean, just just release them all. Mm. So he was eventually convicted after all the Hoffa cases on a separate labor racketeering uh, case okay, good, good. and fraud case. Justice eventually. Uh, where he actually tried to get out of the charges by saying mm-hmm. he was still in the employ of the U.S. government and had immunity. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, Parton somehow gets out of jail. You know, one would think he would have no money to his name, um, but he gets spending money from unknown sources and he mm-hmm. goes to nashville that very day to become a country singer <laughs> almost he uh becomes a singer of a different kind uh, uh for walter sheridan oh boy okay so he meets with walter sheridan who functions kind of like his control officer to parton being the spy uh while parton goes on to be a doorman in muscle in hoffa's camp he basically mm-hmm. goes over invites himself over to hoffa at the Andrew Jackson Hotel and says that he's run into a bunch of legal trouble in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. He can't be there for a while. Mm-hmm. Can he stay here while the heat dies down? And he's happy to do any favors for Hoffa that he can. Mm-hmm. Hoffa, who we talked about being like an exceptionally like generous person. And I, I don't mean that lightly. Like he would yeah. literally just like give out cash to people who came to his office. Right. This is not at a character for him to do. Mm-hmm. I do have like half a suspicion that this like suddenly appearing guy from Louisiana might have seemed like a spy to him. And maybe they were like, maybe we can just feed him information going right. back the other yeah, way. Bullshit, yeah. yeah. But I don't know. Um, both things seem plausible to me. Mm-hmm. Parton was a spy during the Nashville trial during that original test fleet case. And he turned into a stool pigeon, a prosecution witness in the Chattanooga trial. But this is unlikely to have been the original plan. Harden, during the Nashville trial, was actually outfitted with electronic recording equipment. This was something completely denied by the prosecutor for like decades and all of the prosecution team and Walter Sheridan. But he was outfitted with electronic recording equipment 
which was denied by Sheridan, but confirmed by future Nixon prosecutor Archibald Cox, who worked on the case, lead prosecutor Jim Neal, and Parton's own son, Edward Grady Parton II. Mm. And I say this is important for a critical reason, which is the Supreme Court had, like not even 10 years before it decided a case against a Communist Party member and union organizer who had their legal team had been wiretapped. So their conversations that they have their own lawyers, their private conversations were wiretapped and the prosecution through the FBI was able to know what their defense strategy was. So they couldn't have a fair trial. They were seeing the playbook the whole time. Um, They had no privacy and no ability to really confer with their lawyer. Everything would be used against them. The Supreme Court found that this was such an egregious violation of the right to a fair trial that the case had to be dismissed with prejudice, meaning that it's dead and can never come back. Mm-hmm. It's not just that you get a new trial, it's that the case can never be brought again. Yeah. So if Sheridan or his team ever admitted that they had wired up Parton and basically bogged Hoffa and his lawyers while they're meeting the hotel room talking defense strategy, mm-hmm. that would mean that the case would be dead and never come back. Mm-hmm. It also would be a huge embarrassment to Sheridan. Mm-hmm. As Hoffa and his team, especially Bernard Spindell, who was also there, in Nashville were saying that they thought it seemed clear that they were being bogged and wiretapped all over the place. Now, Parton claimed later at trial from the moment that he walked into the Andrew Jackson Hotel to meet up with Hoffa and his team during the test fleet trial, he immediately ran into a guy named Nicholas Tweel, a Chicago insurance man and close man, friend of Hoffa's money man, Alan Dorfman. Hmm. And immediately, Nicholas Tweel talks to this random guy who just walked in the door in Nashville and says that Hoffa has this jury sewed up. Mm. how we have our way we know the jurors and it's all been taken care of it was taken care of before hoffa even got here Mm. okay this is just guy who he doesn't know at all yeah it's just this guy talking yeah now nicholas twill's story was that no he had a conversation with parton and parton said like i'm just a guy i came out of uh, out of baton rouge i'm running into some legal trouble can you give me a lawyer who who works in baton rouge and twill actually said yes i do happen to know a lawyer who works in baton rouge he then went clubbing the rest of the night. Mm-hmm. That's Twill's story. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Parton continued spying and stealing and likely copying defense documents, which resulted in an incident at the Nashville trial called the psychic attorney incident, uh-huh. where the defense attorney starts to question a witness on the stand. And lead prosecutor says, wait, you can't go into that. That's way beyond the scope. And, he, and the defense attorney turns and says, wait, how do you know what I'm getting into? How do you know what I'm about to ask about? Yeah. And the judge says, like, how do you know what he's about to ask about? Mm. To which the lead prosecutor, Jim Neal, said, I'm psychic. Was that like as a joke or? I think he he passed it off as a joke, but he had nothing else to say. Yeah. Also, it's the 60s, man. Right. Yeah. It's groovy. Yeah. Parton and Sheridan denied, actually, that Parton was paid anything for his services or even that Parton was a, a, a spy in any conventional sense. Sheridan maintained that Parton, he, that he didn't know how Parton got out of jail, that it must have been something with the Louisiana justice system, mm-hmm. and that Parton was actually just a man of good conscience who, having associated himself with Hoffa, was now like, oh man, some bad things are going on. I better report this to the prosecution. Mm. Mm. Yeah, he's just a Honest citizen. Just an honest citizen. He he turned a new leaf. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, despite the fact that Sharon had said that, Pardon was being paid money. They 
there's a DOJ document showing that they funnel $1,500 at least from a confidential fund, meaning like a fund for confidential informants to Parton's wife. And Sheridan's response to this when Hoffa's lawyers brought this up in kind of post-conviction proceedings was to say, these really were for Parton's wife. She, he was worried about her. They were helping him out, not as payment for Parton for being a CI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Judge Brennan, kind of the lib the liberal justice on the court, mm -hmm. was pretty appalled by Parton. And when Hoffa's case was reviewed, referred to him as jailbird, mm. and basically said, it's inconceivable that the prosecution should expect the court, much less the Supreme Court, to believe that Parton just happened to get out of jail, happened to find his way to Jimmy Hoffa's place, happened to be paid this money, happened to be in on all these conversations. Right. And that it wasn't directed by the prosecution the entire time. Right. We've been pretty frank about just putting out what we believe is the only real scenario here, which is that Parton was sprung from jail to be a spy. Yeah. Which is more or less what he told his son, according to William Tayback. And and we think that the reason it worked is because of Hoffa's generous streak. I mean, I think it's as good a theory as any. Mm -hmm. It could have also been that maybe he, like in the worst reading of it, like maybe he was like, I want a goon-like partner around yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe maybe Parton had done some stuff for Hoffa in the past. Maybe the fact that he was running guns to Castro was something sanctioned directly by Hoffa, mm -hmm. and so Parton had participated in that. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think we really can know. Only we can know is that, like, it seems pretty clear that Parton made himself readily available as a spy for Walter Sheridan, mm -hmm. and that um, I don't think Parton would have known to, to link up with Sheridan unless Sheridan reached out mm. or maybe a state trooper <laughs> reached yeah. out to Sheridan about Parton's cases. Yeah. Um, so there were three actual examples of the a real attempt to tamper with the jury. And each of them has the, well, each of them except one has the unique circumstance that a cop is involved. Mm. The first one was a potential juror. So part of the jury pool that's in what they call the veneer, the the grouping of people who are eligible to be on a jury. And then key men. Well, the key men choose the veneer. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And then the veneer is... It sounds like something from Vampire the Masquerade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it like something from Vampire the veneer clan. The veneer. Yeah. Chosen by the key men. God, it does sound something like a silly and gothy. Mm. But that's lawyers for you. Um, also, they speak in Latin shit all the time. So it, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty consistent. Mm. Anyway, so the Betty Pascal was a woman who was part of the denier. One of the, the few women mm. or black people who were on that in that jury pool, mm -hmm. as uh, as Tommy Osborne pointed out, her husband was Carl Pascal, who was a state trooper. Carl Pascal was angling with it for a promotion of the state highway patrol. And allegedly, his friend Oscar Pitts reached out to him to be an intermediary between himself and a guy named Ewing King, who was head of the local Nashville Teamsters local. Now, if you're still with me here, Pascal thought that King could get him his promotion with the Teamsters sway with the state legislator. Uh. Now, Pitts admitted on cross-examination that he, Pitts, actually approached King about getting the promotion for Pascal. Mm -hmm. So... This isn't a scenario where Ewing King, head of the Nashville Teamsters local, reached out to Carl Pascal to try to influence his wife. Mm -hmm. It actually happened the other way around, mm -hmm. if anything. King 
Pascal, the state trooper, and Pitts, Pascal's friend, meet up one night in November 17, 1962, and talk to Pitts' car about whether King, the Teamsters guy, could help Pascal, the state trooper, get the promotion on the state police force. Now, in their original affidavits and FBI interviews, all of them denied that Pascal, the state trooper, was told to talk to his wife about voting not guilty for Hoffa. Yeah. Except to some degree for Pitts all and King, uh, they changed their stories by the time trial came around to saying that King asked Pascal, the state trooper, to talk to his wife to influence her to vote not guilty for Hoffa. Okay. Are you still with me on this? I'm going to try tenuous to, chain. Of yeah, evidence? I'm going to try to explain it. So the idea, the idea going backwards, is that uh, Hoffa supposedly had the Nashville Teamsters chief King, who had been approached by state policeman Pitts. Not state policeman Pascal, whose wife is on the jury. But Pitts is involved. Yeah, Pitts was like the intermediary between yeah. King and Pascal. So Pitts acts as intermediary between state trooper Pascal, whose wife is on the jury, uh, King through Pitts, um, but also directly to po- uh, state trooper Pascal, uh, said, hey, if uh, you can get your wife to uh, vote non-guilty for Jimmy Hoffa, then maybe we can get you, Pascal, your promotion within the state highway patrol using my king's uh, influence as a teamster local head with the Tennessee state legislature. That's right. Okay. Well, Seems a little tangy, that's right. And kind of relying on luck, but I mean, I guess yeah. if you were if you were the get Hoffa people, you could say, well, uh, you know, uh, King uh, wanted to getting good with his boss, Hoffa. So he saw this opportunity and he took it. Yeah. Now, the issue here is that, you know, this kind of implicates King, right? Yeah. Ewing King, head of the Nashville Teamsters local. And... You can't prove the Hoffa. But yeah, it it doesn't really connect to Hoffa, except until Ed Parton's testimony comes in. Mm. So Parton... As Fred J. Cook said, Parton's testimony pictured Hoffa as a desperate man, intent on rigging the Nashville jury. He himself makes statements that implicate him in trying to fix things with the state trooper, saying Hoffa was on King, Ewing King, Mm -hmm. and that he denounced King as a stupid SOB thumping around and not getting the job done. Mm -hmm. And that he was, quote, very upset because the highway patrolman didn't take the money. Mm. That was Parton testifying. Yeah, that this was said. He didn't pick that up on. No. Okay. No. Parton's just saying that he heard Hoffa say that. Okay. Honestly, I think what likely happened here, because here's the key thing to keep in mind with Betty Pascal and her husband Carl Pascal and all this other shit. Betty Pascal is not yet seated on the jury. Right. She's not a juror. She's in the veneer or whatever it's called, the veneer. Yeah. The vampire clan. Uh, but is not yet. So this would be extra speculative on the part of King, right? The idea that maybe this lady will get on and then maybe uh, for the exchange of like a flex of legislative muscle to get her husband promoted, she would vote that Hoffa was not guilty. Yeah, I and I mean, I think what happened here was that I do think her husband, Carl Pascal, reached out to right. King through mm-hmm. his friend Pitts 
to right. try to see if maybe he could get a promotion right. if the his wife gets on the jury. The yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't, I Which don't makes think more that sense helps. because, yeah, why would we assume that King even knew about and, Pascal and, and his wife? And they changed their stories. In particular, Trooper Pascal changed his story because they were threatened with being indicted by Walter Sheridan. And right. all of them admitted to being threatened by Walter Sheridan. Right. The next case is an even the, the next instance, rather, of jury tampering is an even dumber one. That's the case of Groton Fields. Mm. Groton Fields was an elderly black retired railroad worker mm. living in Nashville. He was the one black guy in the veneer. He was the, the one veneer. black guy. Yeah. He was in the running to be seated on the jury. And, you know, one could argue that with Tommy Osborne jumping up and down about how the jury isn't remotely representative of Nashville, mm -hmm. that he might have stood a good chance of getting on the jury to, to play gay Tommy Osborne. Right. But as we all know, Walter Sheridan at this point, at least for jury purposes, appears to hate black people. Mm. Groton Fields, this elderly black retired railroad worker, his nephew, Carl Fields, is approached by, can you take a guess? Well, is is it by uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, a state trooper? Oh, yeah, that was going to be my second guess. Another state trooper in this time in the uh, who was being employed by Walter Sheridan explicitly. Uh, this was a state trooper, state highway patrolman named Jack Walker. Mm -hmm. Now, Jack Walker, through another confusing intermediary, gets Carl Fields to tell him in exchange for cash what his uncle, Grottenfields, is wearing to court on a specific day. Okay. But like... Doesn't you... sound much like jury tampering, does it? No. Like, who's... Uh, who's Parks again? Parks is... Uh, sorry, Parks is the intermediary. Okay. Who Walker gets to talk to Carl Fields. Okay. Walker's a state trooper. Oh, the state trooper. Okay. Jesus. Yeah, so, sorry, to back up. So, state trooper Walker talks to this guy... Parks to talk to Carl Fields, the nephew of Groton Fields, who's on the jury about what his uncle is wearing to court. If you're confused, I am too. Yeah. I read through this five fucking times yeah. to try to find out why it would matter for a jury tampering case what the juror is wearing. Mm. He's not even on the jury. Right. And you wouldn't you kind of already know who he was because he was the one black guy? That's what everyone points out. Yeah. You know how you know who Groton Fields is? He's the one black guy in the veneer. Yeah. And instead, he's supposedly paying his nephew to tell him what tie he's wearing. Uh -huh. Now, this escalates a bit. And at one point, State Trooper Walker says that Parks, the intermediary, laid out cash out for Carl Fields. Why? Because he wants Carl Fields to talk to his uncle about maybe voting for Hoffa because it would be worth $10,000. And to corroborate this, now, there are phone calls from Nashville to local 299 in Detroit where Parks has a relative who is a treasurer there at local 299. Mm -hmm. The problem is that, according to the testimony of others, Walker is the one who told him, can you call the uncle at local 299? Mm -hmm. So this seems to just be a straightforward setup, yeah. right? To, to be able to say, like, I gave money to this kid repeatedly. He gave me information. He mm. said, you know, I'm going to talk to my uncle. And here to prove it, here's the calls between this guy and his uncle over at Local 299 in Detroit, which is Hoffa's local. Mm -hmm. Now we have 
Peter, we're back on the case. That's right. We're we're rested. We're refreshed. We're ready to finally take that son of a bitch Hoffa down. Oh wait, wait, wait! No, that's not what we do here. No, no. we're on the other side. Mostly, yeah, yeah. Um, so, as we were saying here, there was a very complicated little game of finger pointing and kind of building a mosaic of evidence to try to show that. Hoffa and his legal team and really a couple of Teamsters in Detroit and in Nashville who are around him have put together a scheme to try to convey maybe a bribe to a potential juror, the one black juror on the jury pool, Rotten Fields. Mm. I say this is a very bizarre scheme because you might remember this is the one where a kid gets paid to try to say whether his uncle like what tie his uncle's wearing right yeah there's all this this needless subterfuge yeah again for a a juror who is the one black juror 
because right. of the key man system yeah. going on in, in Nashville. So this probably would have lost any juror down the line's attention in the, in the jury tampering trial, mm-hmm. were it not for the fact that it ends up getting corroborated by the state star witness or the, the, the federal government star witness, again, Edward Grady Parton. Mm-hmm. So corroborating this, Parton, you know, now an intimate of Hoffa and, and hanging out with him during this test fleet trial has Hoffa saying, I have that black male juror in my hip pocket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This doesn't sound weird at all, right? Yeah, it doesn't sound stilted for like a you know mid-century thug talking to a labor leader. No. No, not not at all. Definitely not uh pitched 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 to the balcony. I, I also like how he has him like make the, the subtle distinction that he has the black male juror. Right, yeah. Black male juror. Now Hoffa was in the habit of like really over uh enunciating. Mm-hmm. things because he didn't like the notion that people thought of him as a, yeah. a quote illiterate buffoon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but uh when groton fields this retired railway worker living in nashville who had somehow been able to pass his way through this already racist classes mm-hmm. sexist key man system yeah uh he's ejected from the jury poll and Basically, he's told by a judge of Mr. Fields, you've been relieved from the jury. He walks out and there's a crowd of reporters around him. Uh-huh. He has no idea what the fuck is going on. That sucks. Or he just right. knows that he's been excused from the jury. And uh, I think listeners should be like a little bit on guard here, given the fact that, as we said with one of the previous Hoffa trials, the D.C. bribery trial, where Walter Sheridan, who acts as RFK's hatchet man here, said like basically blame the verdict yeah. on the the Joe Louis Joe Joe Lewis and the uh and how how bamboozled black jurors yeah. could be in his view uh yeah. is fucking ridiculous. Yeah that the fact that the one black juror gets ejected because of this implication should be a little bit suspicious. Right. Yeah it's almost like it's uh you know something that they uh thought of doing yeah, it's almost like he tamp- that, that it's almost like Walter Sheridan yeah, tampered with, with the, the jury. jury. Yeah. But Jeremy. there was uh there was one more uh jury tampering charge here, one more allegation uh on another juror in Hoffa's test fleet trial that, that was the basis for this jury tampering case. And that was a guy named James Tippins. The only actual juror, by which I mean he was he was sworn in, he was sat down in the box. You are a member of the jury, and he's the only one to. So the allegation goes: get an actual offer of money to mm-hmm. vote for Hoffa's case. Mm-hmm. Every other one, it's like you know maybe it would be a good idea if you talk to someone about maybe helping out Hoffa and having like three different contradictory statements. But for James Tippins, he got his money offer of ten thousand dollars from a friend named Lawrence Red Medlin. But Red's bribery source was unknown. Like where did Red get the offer that if you if you say to your friend, you know, $10,000 would that would that be your price to vote for Hoffa? Where did you get your money? Weirdly enough though, the friend claimed that he didn't make the offer to James Tippins at all. He didn't offer to bribe James Tippins in 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 his render, rendition of what happened, he claimed that he didn't make the offer, but was simply telling Tippins, 
I heard there's an offer of ten thousand dollars going around. Is is Red was Red Midland a teamster? No. What was his? Did he have any involvement with? Like, what was his deal? Why would? And that's another problem. No, he Red Midland was a national businessman, as was James Tippett's. Right. And as to where Midland got his own offer, that kind of just remains a mystery. Midland got his trial severed. So when Hoffa and Alan Dorfman and all his other... Okay, so they arrested Midland. Yeah. They arrested Midland for this, for, for proffering yes. the bribe. Yes. And he the trial was severed. It was not a part of the Hoffa trial. Is right. what you're saying? Did they convict him? Yes, they did convict him. But all they had to do to convict Midland was to put James Tippins on the stand yeah. and have James Tippins te well, testify to Midland's defense, if any. That basically he was just relaying a rumor that he Oh, heard. right, right. You said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess in theory, Midland could have just like really liked Jimmy Hoffa and wanted him to get <laughs> off and happen to know a juror. Like, yeah, I mean, that's but apparently, apparently, that, that doesn't seem as likely as him just. Yeah. And, and why would it be like, do we, is, is the thesis here that Midland's, the Midland case, was part of a effort to entrap or discredit Hoffa on the part of his enemies in the federal the, the Get Hoffa team. Yeah, so I, I'm not able to even really answer that. I I don't know. I like it. It could very well be that Midland himself was acting as an agent for King or right. one of the other Hoffa team and actually trying to bribe a juror. And, and, and or, yeah, you know, and it was Tippins who tipped off. Who said uh, yes. this person approached me? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Huh. But we don't have any idea of Midland's own source for ten thousand. Right. Whether Midland himself just heard a rumor, you know, maybe put by a compliant state trooper, we don't know. To this day, it was his, his word against Tippins, but they still convicted him. Exactly. Hmm. And one thing that they did have going, as would the other jury bribery scenarios is that just by coincidence, Edward Grady Parton, the spy planted on the Hoffa team, says that he heard Hoffa make remarks about how they have a juror. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not the proverbial black male. A different one this time. Yes, okay. a different one this time. There happens to be a separate little reminiscence for uh -huh, for uh -huh. every juror that they need to, yeah, yeah. Need, to okay. need to bribe. So probably the the part where Walter Sheridan's team really did go like above and beyond in entrapping someone is that they then went after Hoffa's lawyer. Mm -hmm. Now Hoffa had a whole team of lawyers, of course. Um, some listeners who are well versed in Hoffaology or whatever. Are, are some listeners well versed or is it just you? You know, it might just be me. Yeah. But listeners who are well-versed in Hoffaology or, or have seen The Irishman oh, okay. or 1992's Hoffa. It's just my failure to watch movies that's coming to bite me. They will probably be saying, I thought his attorney was this Italian guy named Bill Buffalino. And mm -hmm. Bill Buffalino was basically Hoffa's like private attorney on retainer at all times. Yeah. But these guys were the specialists who were brought right. in for a serious criminal trial. The dream team. Yeah. So Buffalino's there, Tommy Osborne is there uh -huh. as lead counsel, and Sheridan comes up with a scheme to take out Tommy Osborne. Namely, he sends in another state trooper. Uh 
So just to back up a little bit, as you recall, Tommy Osborne, ZT Osborne, he was the guy who got one person, one vote at the state level. He got rid of all these unequally sized districts. He was Hoffa's top counsel and basically got roped into a scheme where he was propositioned several times by a state trooper whom he knew named Robert D. Vick, who had been record who had been recruited by Walter Sheridan onto his Get Hoffa team. <laughs> and Vic said, you know, I heard the trial's not going your way, and I know a way to, to get $10,000 to a juror. Mm. This scheme, of course, was entirely an invention by Walter Sheridan and Robert Vick. Mm. Um, Osborne himself didn't contact Hoffa and didn't appear to contact Hoffa on it. And after like a couple of times at this proposition, he says like, well, and he says words to the effect of like, well, can that really be done? And uh, okay, and we'll go through with it. It was a pretty damning yeah. statement, and it was all captured by a tape recorder that Robert Vick had on his back. Uh huh. So I don't know. I, I I feel like we need to steel man this as annoying internet people say a little. Sure. So if one of Hoffa's closest allies and attorneys, uh, Tommy Osborne, expresses a willingness to do this sort of thing, yeah, uh, on the record. Uh, so to speak, then wouldn't it stand to reason that it was like at, at the very least not a practice that was out and out rejected by Hoffa as people to to bribe jurors? No, I, I think it's I think it's okay. a reasonable uh, criticism. I think that even on some level that was certainly going through Sheridan's head that he just kind of knew that this was a thing that Hoffa did with jurors, with judges, with others somehow conveying payment offers and so entrap you know build <laughs> entrapping a few jurors or entrapping his lawyer was fair game even yeah. though this wasn't a real plot right um i'm not i'm not saying legally it should hold up i'm saying in terms of what we know about hoffa and what he what his mo is yeah the thing is though uh, about that is that tommy osborne had never worked for hoffa before okay and there's no there's not only no evidence but there there seems to not be have been a means in which tommy osborne would communicate this offer to hoffa and then have gotten back orders to do it um okay. it kind of looks like in the dirtiness of this trial that he he over time came to think that that was an okay thing. Now whether there's you know some right potential that he like talked to another one of Hoffa's attorneys like Bill Buffalino right. and got the okay to go ahead and do it, you know that that might have happened. Okay, so your argument would be that how Tommy reacts, especially in this situation, would not be indicative of like the teamster method of dealing with legal troubles at that time. Yeah, not by itself, but on, honestly, I do think that like the fact that he did agree to do this offer reflects pretty poorly. Like they almost certainly like bribed some juries. It's just but, not this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get that. Yeah, um, I, you know, whatever for for all that. I just, uh, I but just yeah, wanna... it's definitely not outside their mo. Yeah, if okay. the if the chips are down, yes. I should say yes. All right. Yeah. I just figured it's a good thing to have. Now, the, to have the case wasn't so, even with that recording, though, the case was kind of contrived enough that 
both the local Nashville bar and the federal prosecutor, the assistant U.S. attorney's mm -hmm. office, uh, did not want to prosecute Tommy Osborne. Mm -hmm. yeah, they right. wanted him taken off the case, but absolutely did not want to prosecute him and refused the, yeah. the first orders to prosecute him. It's like it's like a it's like a it's like a drug it's like a rip and run like a drug sting almost yeah but on like a prominent member of the bar yeah a, a nationally well known member yeah. of the bar however and honestly this one isn't one that RFK did President John F Kennedy then calls up the local U.S. Attorney's office oh, wow himself and says prosecute Tommy Osborne send him to prison and I imagine that happened. That did. Um, Osborne got convicted and, and did appeal, but uh, he was sentenced to prison. And when he got out, he killed himself in 1970. Shit. Yeah. Having been completely disgraced. Fuck. So you have a case that's much stronger in terms of its witnesses, it mm -hmm. seems like. And it's a much more serious case yeah. than uh, the underlying case, the test fleet case where they're having to monotonously explain, you know, the path of a check or a payment deposit mm -hmm. to yeah. a jury. And also, I, I have to say, with a case like this, a jury tampering case, jury's going to be very suspicious of anything you do or say, because the underlying accusation is one of complete dishonesty right. and corruption. And why didn't they come to me? I could use the cash. <laughs> what am I, chop liver? Yeah, and resentment on the part of the jury. Yeah. I deserve $10,000. Yeah. So Hoff is found guilty. Mm. Um, but that's not the only trial he's found guilty on. Mm. But having racked up one felony in 1965, we have trial number five. And he's appealing all the business. From he's appealing all the business. Of so in 1965, you have the Sun Valley Pension Fund trial, which mm. is the... Probably the favored case of Michelle Gongle Jimmy. Yeah, that's the one I've heard the most of in his when he when he includes Hoffa as a character. Yeah. It's it's definitely the one that most clearly is about fraud and mishandling members' money mm -hmm. and spending members' money. Right. This is technically a what's called a mail fraud case. Mm -hmm. And mail fraud in federal statutes is any fraud that uses the federal mails. As commerce. So if you at any time while you're doing a fraud, you know, misrepresenting contracts or misappropriating money at any time during that process, if you mail any document as part of that in between states, you have now done mail fraud. Now, does that is that just the U.S. Postal Service or are you off Scott Clean if you use UPS? It's the channels of interstate mail. I see. I see. Yeah. Um, if similarly, if you at any time use a telephone line or electronic telecommunication, mm -hmm. that becomes wire fraud. Yes, yes. Okay, that that actually does explain a few things from movies that I never quite understood. Okay, that's good. yeah. It's it's an esoteric concept. Um, I personally don't know why. So for some people, this is a favorite case. This is their favorite Hoffa case, the one they like to focus on. But just to explain the kind of the essence of this case which is first kind of investigated and charged in Florida. That's dismissed, and it gets investigated and recharged again in Illinois after RFK forms the Get Hoppe Squad, and they kind of uh, shore up some of these older prosecutions, which got investigated and kind of ditched when they couldn't find mm -hmm. enough evidence. This is a case about whether Hoffa used his sway over the central state's pension fund, his 
biggest pension fund covers all those Midwestern states and has millions of dollars pouring into it from all kinds of employers and no doubt has a lot of little shakedown, mm. quasi-legal things that sure, sure. redirect themselves into Hoffa's bank account. Yeah. It's about whether he used his sway over that to shore up his own investment in a Florida real estate boondoggle, as okay. it turned out that the fund got swindled, which never happens in Florida. All of their real estate, you know, yeah, what propositions are, you, are genuine. What do you say about Florida? Yeah. Uh, it's an honorable land. The most honorable. Yeah. Well, come on. What are we? We're, we're Massachusetts. It's definitely not a state that's entirely built on real estate fraud. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, I think I think they have the last laugh in that. You know, arguably this whole country. Um. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So the idea here is is that Hoffa personally invested in a bad Florida real estate deal, and then took when he to make himself whole he took money from the from the pension fund if only it were so simple peter so the sun valley development was supposed to be a leafy bucolic suburb in florida right. for teamster families that they could retire to and leave right. the industrial right driving around all the winners and they're tired of it they've, they've earned their they've earned their time in the sun it was uh, it was helped along and envisioned by a, a true visionary, a guy named Henry Lower, who came to local 299, and it turned out was a complete George Santos type figure himself. R.I.P. to a real one. R.I.P. to a real one. Um, while Lower represented himself as kind of like an ideas man who, uh, mm. you know, was a, a quick talker and recruited people in a thing and got recruited people into the local. And uh, eventually got a couple organizing positions at the local. He had actually been an escapee from a California chain gang in the 30s. Oh, wow. And we're not really sure that Henry Lower is his real name. Huh. It's amazing. Also, we, it's interesting. I wonder if Arrested Development. I mean, I think there was other reasons they called it that. But the big uh, the big development that the Bloofs are always trying to sell is Sudden Valley. <laughs> now, there's other jokes involving like yeah. oh, suddenly a valley. Uh but it does have a lot like Sun Valley. It does. It does. I, I think it's in that. Hmm. So he had been in that Florida chain gang on a, on a check fraud charge. Yeah. But uh, so Henry Lower had this development. Uh, it was way out in the Everglades. And, you know, the characterization of it usually is, you know, people thought they were buying uh, beautiful Florida real estate. And it turns out it was a swamp filled with alligators and so on. But isn't I, that the whole state? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not it's trying to be ignorant. Certainly in the 1950s, yeah. there was a lot I of that. I think it's fine to be swamp full of alligators. Let, let Florida live. And uh, the Teamster Central States Pension Fund, of course, gave Henry Lower, as it does, a big fat loan to develop and build, uh, I think it's about a thousand tract houses mm. in this area that he had bought up. Um, the only, here's the crucial thing, though. The charge in the Sun Valley case was that Hoffa himself had some kind of personal interest and that rather than just being this just being like a, an accident or a mismanagement on the part of the fund, like, you know, maybe you shouldn't have trusted this guy who, you know, you don't really know if he's actually named Henry Lower mm -hmm. and have you done any any diligence yeah, on this development? Down to the swamp to yeah, see like, how swampy it is. You know, that by itself wouldn't be wouldn't be a crime right the crime here is that supposedly hoffa had some kind of personal stake 
in the development uh-huh. in which he could have received money had it succeeded. And then to rescue his defaulting loan, he redirected more Teamsters pension fund money okay. to shore it up. So if you can't prove the link where Hoffa somehow has a stake in the Sun Valley development, this just becomes you know, being a fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but not like a crime. The The Department of Justice investigated and dropped charges, as I said, um, one or two times in this case mm-hmm. um, in the 1950s. By the time that this came to trial against Hoffa in 1965, Henry Lower was dead. Ah. The only actual evidence of a personal interest or stake by Hoffa in the Sun Valley development was pretty suspicious. It was a trust document, which can be a simple like one page document, like X holds this in trust for Y person, right? That Henry Lower's son discovered in a book in his dad's study Hmm. when Henry Lower died. Okay. So it was not among his like papers. Right. It was in a book. It was in like a copy of Shogun. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Was Shogun out by then? No. Wait, was it out by then? It might have been. James Clavel. Yeah, maybe maybe it was a copy of Shogun. We're pausing the podcast where everything's on hold. We got, oh, don't, there's going to be a joke. Okay, 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 okay. Come on, where's Shogun? 1975. So no, Shogun was out. But King Rat was 62. So it was in his copy of King King Rat. Rat. Yeah. You know, non-canon, but it's, it's there. The defense contested, like, come on, this document's not authentic. Like, there wasn't a secret trust for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a stake in this. I was just making decisions for the Teamsters Union. And they were signed off on by the all the other members of the board, which included industry representatives and other union members and blah, blah, blah. The prosecution wheeled out some document examiners who said, Yes, that is authentic. And mm-hmm. yes, that is a signature on it. And yes, that's Jimmy Hoffa's signature. So his handwriting analysis turned out to be fake, like various other types of analysis. It's oh, it's turned out to be overstated. Ah. Uh-huh. That's the thing with a lot of these like re-examination of things like tool mark evidence yeah. and so and, and you know, bite mark evidence mm. and, and handwriting analysis is you can't say like I know to a scientific certainty that the only way that you make that handwriting that way is because it is this same person. I can know that mm-hmm. to a, a reasonable degree of scientific or forensic right. certainty. They shouldn't have ever been allowed to say that. But in the 1960s, you know, they were yeah. ooh, they were definitely it was allowed a time, to say it was that. a time of science. Uh yeah, I mean, I guess my sort of what I'm thinking about now is is I wonder whether this was again uh, uh, from the from a legal standpoint, whatever it is. But is this the kind of thing that Hoffa would have done? Have a like, secret trust and yeah. a secret interest in something? Yes. Okay. That's the short answer, and I, I only say this because there's there's so many rumored bits of how Hoffa could like through quasi legal mechanisms have made a profit off of arrangements and deals that he had made. Yeah. Um, including and especially on, you know, casino interests. Right. Hoffa had a lot of open business interests yeah. and investments and developments, and a trust wouldn't have been beyond the, the pale to do that. Right. Um, the weird part of this, though, is that it's just, like, secreted away in, like, a book. Yeah. That seems a little odd. Um, yeah. No, I'm not sure whether I believe in this one. Yeah. It's just like, it, what, what I I guess, you know, partially we want to, I think, have an idea of 
who Hoffa was and how he operated. Like, we don't, I don't think we want to idealize him, but at the same time, like, I'm sure, you know, this was also just kind of standard business procedure for many different kinds of leaders, not just many kind of powerful men at that time, politicians. That's the odd thing. Capitalists, what have you. That's the odd thing with these Hoffa trials is, you know, through, you know, memoirs and statements and a, a lot of later examination of people who are close to Hoffa, there seems no doubt that he had hidden business interests and like quasi-legal business interests that he, he got money out of, that he used Alan Dorfman. Right. Uh, his, you know, Chicago associate who was deeply connected to the mob, uh, who ran the central states pension fund, essentially, uh, that he used him as his kind of like bank. Mm -hmm. But just as with the, the jury tampering trial, you know, why is it that the cases that are wheeled out are so right. bad? Are, are, yeah, I mean, you have to imagine that, you know. Like it seems like there there should be crops to harvest here well, he was as far a, as the illegality. Yeah, as far as I can tell, he was just, he was a, A, probably doing less and less flagrant illegal shit and probably doing the same kind of illegal shit that like fucking the attorney general was probably doing at the same time yeah. or like the all the all the big business people who donated to all the politicians probably also doing similar shady shit that's how people get rich but you and you also have to think i mean Hoffa was a master organizer who was used to having an adversarial relationship with the authorities uh, to a certain extent, and so he would be pretty good at covering his tracks. Yeah. So they have to come up with a lot of the time this just rained a bullshit to yeah. I, I I I tend to think that there is something to the notion that much of what he did was in this gray area of legality. Yeah, and he used his army of attorneys and people like you know Alan Dorfman to make sure that he was just on the right side of the law. Right, even though you know pull the camera back like he's stashing away you know millions of dollars yeah. in in secret banks just in case you know right. that he's backed up against the corner right um and a lot of this money according to a lot of sources you know doesn't go to just feathering off his own nest he uses it to neutralize foes yeah to to contribute to a lot of politicians campaign funds so that they're not campaigning against him yeah and I mean, so on yeah i mean my understanding was he lived like a pretty good lifestyle but not like a lavish right yeah, like you He's, know. he saw money as power. He said yeah. he said money won't money won't let you sleep at night. Power will. Mm, interesting. That's an interesting line. So they got him, ladies and gentlemen. We got him. Yeah. So they got him on this one. This case, the Sun Valley case, turned out to be like the double tap that they needed mm. to put Hoffa down. But he still had appeals to run yes. through, and. I should also say, not to mess up the timeline too much, but it was during this tr this double tap two trial period where you had the Chattanooga jury tampering trial and the Sun Valley trial on mail fraud that Hoffa is actually working his hardest to get the thing that he has campaigned for for decades. Mm, so uh, he's still doing politics this whole time. Yes, and Still, union politics, yeah. union organizing. He actually manages to fulfill during this time, while he's under all these legal matters, Farrell Dobbs's dream of a mm. national master freight agreement. Mm. And so you, I looked at what was won under this national master freight agreement. This was on January 16th of 1964. This was an agreement that covered 
pretty much every major and uh, most minor trucking companies in the country. It was meant for what was called over-the-road trucking or long-haul big rigs mm. on the highways, as well as local cartage, trucks that drive and deliver stuff around cities. The ice truck. The ice truck. So 800 separate long-haul and short-haul trucking firms were brought under a single agreement, which won the drivers across the country, even in the Jim Crow, super anti-union South, $400 million in increased wages mm -hmm. and benefits, equivalent to about $3.98 billion today over the course of the three-year contract. Wow. These gains were shared by almost half a million truckers under the agreement. And immediately, uh, the fear expressed in the, the New York Times was that the agreement allowed Hoffa to call a, quote, national trucking strike, mm -hmm. which Hoffa pledged he would never do. Right. Uh, it's Like he said, it's a nuke. Yeah. Like, you don't want to strike first. You don't want to strike first, but they know that, like, it, it's, it's a like, full debtor. Yeah, it's it's like Hoffa's like an internal North Korea to the, <laughs> the New York Times. Yeah, like, yeah. Once they have the nuke, you just have to... You, you just tear your house because like, well, they have the nuke. Uh, he's a madman. He can't be allowed. He's uncouth. <laughs> okay, like, like Kim Jong-il. Um, They're both sure. It, Hoffa, Hoffa said that he, and he gave a kind of a spurious reason for saying this. He said that he would never call a national trucking strike because that would make him lose the, the thing that he used the most to get better wages yeah. which is playing companies off against each other right, right. by striking one and not the yeah, other yeah. threatening strike one and not another uh -huh. um but at other points including during these trials he said he said that unions should set all of their contracts to expire at the same time because mm. people were pressing them yeah interesting so it was there as a threat as a deterrence mm -hmm. uh the agreement also unified all those grievance procedures because one thing we talked about in uh, episode two that Hoffa really made use of is grievance strikes. Mm. So even if the contract hasn't expired, if people have a problem with say like, you're not paying us on time for these <laughs> yeah. hours that we're waiting at the at the depot. Yeah. You know, that becomes a grievance and that grievance means your workers can walk out. Mm -hmm. Too bad. Yeah. And across the whole unit. Across the whole unit. Yeah, that's pretty big. Now, there were a lot of riders and carve outs in this national master freight agreement. It was not, it was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. One of the biggest kind of losers in the agreement were owner operators who Hoffa and to some extent, just going back to Dan Tobin in the 1930s, always thought of as a little bit of a threat and a competition at pinch. Mm -hmm. If the nation ever went into a depression, it was thought these owner-operator truckers would be potential scabs on all of the truckers that you represented. So why bust your ass trying to right. negotiate for them? He negotiated for them and he won them the same wages and so on. But what he was not negotiating on their behalf for uh, in the National Master Freight Agreement with these owner-operators was any compensation for the cost of their leases mm. on their trucks, uh, the cost of repairs, on their trucks and the cost of fuel. Right, which would tend, if I if I understand that right, would tend to lead them away from being owner, it would be a disincentive towards being an owner operator versus belonging to a company. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what didn't, I, uh, this wasn't necessarily what, what Hoffa was up to, but didn't like the the original Teamsters with Feral Dobbs like make kind of a big deal out of approaching independent 
owner operators? Yeah, Feral Dobbs in particular actually went out of his way to try to to bring them in the fold, partly because he saw them as as a threat to be yes. neutralized. Yes. I think the thing with um with the National Master Freight Agreement is in terms of who he felt he had to neutralize and placate mm -hmm. versus who he felt he had to really bring into the fold with with a carrot. Ultimately, at this time, Hoffa thought the owner operators have to take the back seat. Okay, and that proved to be a major thorn in the side of Teamster presence going forward. And even to some extent, Hoffa, as he would eventually in the 1970s, switch sides and say that you know, the honor operators were his boys. Yeah. It's something that Dan Moldea, frankly, dwelled on too much because most truckers at this time are not owner operators. Right. But it is, it is something that becomes a big deal, particularly in Ohio. Yeah. So... Just because, as we said, he was convicted twice over mm -hmm. by RFK's Get Hoffa team, uh, including after JFK is shot. Yeah. That doesn't mean that Hoffa's in jail just yet. Hoffa was out on bail pending appeal, and he had, you know, some of the best appellate lawyers in the country mm -hmm. and a decent argument. His argument went all the way to the Supreme Court in a oh, case wow. called Hoffa versus United States. Oh. And I think it gets the, the case, I'll post the opinion along with the show notes here, mm. it gets right to the heart of these kind of red hunting counter espionage techniques that were brought into a quote unquote normal prosecution, just a jury tampering case or a, yeah. in this, it really like fraud case. Yeah, a fraud case. And the question in the appeals case was, quote, whether evidence obtained by the government by means of deceptively placing a secret informer in the quarters and councils of the defendant during one criminal trial so violates the defendant's fourth, fifth, and sixth amendment rights that suppression of such evidence requiring a subsequent trial of the same defendant on a different charge. So what the hell does that mean? The question presented by the case was whether putting a spy directly in the defense camp to listen to conversations with, with him, his lawyers, um, and see the defense strategy, see what evidence that they were bringing to bear, whether putting a spy in there violated his rights against unreasonable searches and seizures, his right to have a lawyer represent him at trial. and his right to not self-incriminate. Precisely, the Fifth Amendment. And it, it, it messes things up for all the subsequent trials. Yeah. Right, it makes it all a poison tree, so to speak. That spy, of course, was Edward Grady Parton. And the question is basically whether Edward Grady Parton, having been put into office camp, violated all of those rights and poisoned all of the prosecution subsequent to it. To which the government responded by saying, uh, Parton wasn't a spy. <laughs> the government still refused to concede that they had planted Parton in the defense camp, <laughs> saying that he was still a guy who just like happened to get out of jail. Yeah. And then when he got up to Nashville, just happen to, you know, kind of switch teams and say, I think there might be some bad stuff going on here and I want to talk to the FBI. Is there, is that still the government's official position? I think the government doesn't really have an official yeah. position anymore. I think the office probably dead and they don't know where he is. And yeah. Now, uh, William Tabak's probably the most recent scholar to, to tackle this stuff, really did just completely confirm that Parton was released from from jail because yeah. he promised he would be a spy against Hoffa. On the basis of just like people's testimony about it or by interviewing his son okay. as well as the prosecutor on the case yeah, and, yeah. and other parties involved. Okay. And they also admitted that they wired up 
Edward Grady yes. Barton, yeah. uh, as we talked about in the last episode. Uh, because it would be one thing if he were just an informant, but that he was specifically released from jail and sent in to right. be an informant is like the crux of the Hoffa v. United States case. In part, like the, the Supreme Court really tried to kind of sidestep the question of whether or not Parton was a spy from the beginning or became a spy yeah. when he was in Hoffa's camp. Right. Even though it is important because the question is, is you know, it seems obvious to any court that you can't just take an electronic bug, mm -hmm. right, and go to a defendant's attorney's office and bug that attorney's office and just listen to his conversations as he prepares for trial. Yeah. That undermines his right to a fair trial and yes. his right to consult with his attorney. And it's yeah. an unreasonable search. All that's true. But can you just take a person who is under your control, the control of a guy like Walter Sheridan, yeah. who has him like blackmailed, extorted, or just very compliant to the point where he's a human bug. Yeah. And just plant him in the camp. Yeah. And have him look innocent, unobtrusive, as, as surely as if you put the bug in the lamp or in the light fixture. Well, well, the interesting, uh, that's funny because it gets into this weird, I mean, I don't think this is necessarily where they were going to go with it, but this weird existential quandary, like, you can't prove that Parton did not have an attack of conscience uh, and that he deeply meant, like, what if? What if, uh, what if this was like uh, some fucking Batman villain type scenario and like the Penguin uh, was on trial and he was doing all these slick maneuvers and then the Penguin's young uh, secretary lady had an attack of conscience and came to uh, pre-Scarface uh, uh, Harvey Dent, Two-Face Harvey Dent. And it's like, hey, there's bad stuff going on here. She could tell, she would be a brave woman, Isaac. She would be the re real hero, not just Batman. And are you saying that Parton was not a real hero? You got me. Yeah. I mean, you lost me for several steps back, but well, I'm pretty I'm sure. quite fast. I'm pretty sure you got me. Yeah, because uh, because a bug has no conscience. It isn't taking, I feel like this could be a conservative legal argument, right? <laughs> the bug has no conscience. The bug takes no risk, uh, you know, when, when they put him in there, or they put the bug in there. But if a person does the honorable thing, Isaac, uh, and comes forward. Who are we to question that? The thing is, is, is that ultimately the court... Would you discourage them. heroic young secretaries? No, I, I think as a country, we have to encourage all heroic young secretaries. Yeah, well, they're kind of the root of the nation. Yeah. Foundation of our freedoms. Indeed, the Supreme Court so found. Um, basically, the court's decision in Hoffa of the U.S. Is, is what I said? It's not far off. Damn. It's not far off. They don't use the penguin example. I'm a genius. Or Harvey Dent. Oh. Or oh. a heroic young secretary. But they oh. do say this, which is that, you know, if the government was to physically trespass and, and put in a, a bog or have one of their agents get questions of the defendant, that would be one thing. But that the defendant voluntarily bringing into his camp someone and then spilling the beans to them that's another they also kind of managed to sidestep the issue of 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 how much he listened to in terms of attorney client conversations in part by saying that parton didn't actually hear that much in conversations uh -huh. and that his most incriminatory statements in the substance of the case is the incriminating things that hoffa says to him like i have that blackmail juror in my yeah yeah and shit like that
you know, this isn't a unanimous decision. And I think I might have misspoke in the last episode. I said that Justice Brennan wrote the dissent. Actually, Justice Earl Warren wrote oh, the dissent in this. And he, in particular, is pretty angry about the level of deception mm. by the federal government here in, in how they characterize Parton as this, you know, conscience-stricken man. Right, yeah. So he says... Here, Edward Pardon, a jailbird languishing in a Louisiana jail under indictments for such state and federal crimes as embezzlement, kidnapping, and manslaughter, and soon to be charged with perjury and assault, contacted federal authorities and told them he was willing to become and would be useful as an informer against Hoffa, who was then about to be tried in the Tesley case. A motive for doing this is immediately apparent, namely his strong desire to work his way out of jail and his various legal entanglements with the state and federal governments. And it's interesting to note that if this was his motive, he has been uniquely successful in satisfying it. Mm. In the four years since he first volunteered to be an informer against Hoffa, he has not been prosecuted on any of the serious federal charges where he was at that time jailed, and the state charges have apparently vanished into thin air. Mm. Yeah. So what was how what was like the the was Warren the only dissenter or uh what was the box score? What was the box score here? Hold on. I need, I need to pull this up on oh yay let's get the score the penguin will have so many slick tricks dude many of them bird themed so warren dissented in part it was a 4-1 decision oh fuck yeah where'd the other guys go where'd the other guys go they were they were on break they were right in the circuit the supreme court justices used to do that i found out recently yeah so this was a 4-1 decision okay apparently all right. Majority opinion by Potter Stewart. Mm. Well, that's, that's kind of a buzzkill. Uh, could have gone the other way if the others had showed up and voted Warren. Yeah. Douglas joined Tom Clark's dissent, which is to say that the certiorari was improvidently granted. I know that's got audience members excited. Yeah. But anyway. So, so there were other dissents. There were two other dissents, or rather there was one other dissent that Justice Douglas joined in on. But Earl Warren's dissent is kind of the one that's cited all the time. I see. Okay. So, what does this all mean? Yeah. Was Toffa actually guilty, though? Mm. <laughs> Honestly, Toffa v. U.S. is a real kind of landmark case mm. in, a, in a court jurisprudence that's trying to take into account, like, electronic eavesdropping and all these wiremen that are running around at the mm -hmm. time having now taken advantage of this new technology of bugging and eavesdropping and wiretapping. Mm -hmm. And it provides a pathway out for them to distinguish between, you know, putting a bug and making someone a human bug that ultimately I, I think leads to a pretty insidious country and precedent, which mm -hmm. is that people as bugs are fine mm -hmm. in a sense. There's some limitations, aside viewers, but the bridle has been taken off for the government to make informers right. out of any fraudster yeah. and so on and be able to get evidence from that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we see that more than anything today where people just, like the federal government just creates cases out of thin air, particularly on terrorism charges. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the stereotype would be like an organized crime. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it does happen there as well, but I bet it happens more often under other circumstances. I mean, organized crime prosecutions, both like here and in Italy, were nearly, were really handicapped until 
yeah. wiretapping, but those were that's wiretapping with warrants. Like, right, yeah, like they actually know what they're looking. Right, at. there was it's no like, warrant with these human informants. Right. Instead, they're they're spies, and also yeah. it opens the question of agent provocateurs. Oh yeah, you know, I'm not a constitution like you know thumper, but uh, I, or certainly a founding father fan. Yeah, but it does feel like. Uh, it would be one of those things that they would probably object to, at, at the very least, on the grounds that they would be afraid of each other using it on each other. Yeah. Right? Like, like, like you know, Hamilton would be like, ah, oh, that, that son of a bitch Adams would definitely do that to me uh, if, he, if, he, if he could. That's not, that's not allow that one. Yeah, I'm not much of a, a founding father's lover either, but the, the notion that you shouldn't have a country that's just permeated with spies. Yeah. And people kind of selling information or the possibility of of creating a case, yeah, from just their closeness to someone is is, a, is an actually scary yeah. thing. And I think it leads to some degree to really getting inside Hoffa's mind as we go into the into the mid '60s and late '60s, which is he has a complete siege mentality. Mm. He has no idea who he can trust, and frankly, just use all this loyalty to him as you know a security liability yeah this guy could get me in prison they could they could turn coat and turn state's evidence yeah you trust one drifter off the streets uh and you know uh you you wind up in jail and then how can you how can you trust anybody after that yeah, you just you trust one guy who's who's on a california chain gang for yeah. a check fraud charge and, yeah you, you think you've got a good thing going in florida real estate but it really all it does is uh reduce your faith in humanity yeah that's a problem with situations like this like they, they're not going to make you a better guy no uh surviving them no. so uh so it ultimately i i think this environment from this entire period in the 1960s makes hoffa um a much more paranoid person it makes him make probably I think his stupidest decision as as leader, which is in response to a show of disloyalty from Harold Gibbons, he demotes Harold Gibbons from kick from the international vice presidency, kicks him out of the marble palace, hmm. and instead begins to place his faith much more closely in a guy named Frank Fitzsimmons, hmm. who ultimately becomes his successor when he goes to prison. Now what did Harold Gibbons do that inspired such a uh, such a reprimand from from did he, old he information to the feds? Nope. Oh, did he steal his girlfriend? Nope. Well, I'm out of ideas. So when Kennedy got killed, oh, on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, Harold Harold Gibbons, who was minding the ranch and in Washington at the time, thought it would be a good idea to lower the flags to half mass and tell people they should go home for the day. Oh, no. Whereas Jimmy Hoffa, as he later very publicly said, anytime he was asked, thought that John F. Kennedy was deserving of no respect at all. Wow. And that he respected the office, but not the man. He was really just sad for his family. Huh. Yeah. And so... So so this, uh, this led to a shouting match of why didn't Harold follow Jimmy's orders? To not lower the flags to half mast. There were specific orders not to. Once he found out that Harold Gibbons had ordered it to be lowered to half mast, oh, okay. yes, and this led to a shouting match. Hoffa basically expected Harold to apologize, his old Bert and Ernie friend, and Harold said, "No, I'm not doing that. You're mm. being crazy." And Harold Gibbons then packed up and went back to St. Louis. Damn. 
he wasn't expelled from the union yeah. or anything like that, uh, but he did lose his place of power to Frank Fitzsimmons. Now, mm. Frank Fitzsimmons gets not much play, and we will talk more about Frank next episode, but his image is that of this kind of like bespectacled, soft-spoken guy who doesn't really get into much trouble, but actually he's a little bit of a sinister figure. Mm. So he was widely thought of in the main office as a yes man for Jimmy Hoffa. Mm-hmm. And the, the type of guy who I think one source said, if Jimmy took off his coat and threw it, would, would catch the coat before it hit the uh, ground or was, you know, constantly going off to get coffee. Uh, a Smithers. Yeah. Very much a yeah. Smithers type figure. Um, in actuality, in some of the McClellan committee hearings, it came out that Harold, sorry, Frank Fitzsimmons, while he was a soft-spoken guy, a quiet guy, uh, nonetheless would, had no problem getting his hands really dirty mm. with Morris Gallagher. He was involved in particular with several extortion schemes mm-hmm. with um, the guy we mentioned before, the gigantic... Uh, ogre-like mm. McMaster. Uh, McMaster, right. So, Roland McMaster. Mm. Uh, he was a particularly close associate of McMaster. McMaster was kind of like a close buddy who would carry out like the real heavy stuff yeah, yeah. when Fitzsimmons needed to. And they would join in on extortion schemes together uh-huh. for a variety of companies where those companies would pay them off in order to not have their premises torched. Yeah. Fitzsimmons was also directly implicated in probably one of the more famous cases in Teamster history, which is the case of uh, a guy who functioned as a torch named uh, uh, Frank Kierdorf. Hmm. So, sorry, Hurman Kierdorf. So Kierdorf was a guy who was in prison on a couple of strong arm jobs, got out and the local, local 299 thought he would be a good torch, which is a professional arsonist. Hmm. He turned out to not be a good torch. Yeah. Because when they were in a dispute with a bunch of laundries, one of those laundries was supposed to go up in flames, but instead uh, actually incinerated Kierdorf. Oh. Who was hauled off in a car that was had its license plate taken down and then brought into a hospital later with third degree burns that he oh. died of. And that car then turned out to belong to Frank Fitzsimmons. Yeah. Don't use your own car for that, buddy. But he got off. Oh. So well, and also be careful with the fire. Uh, sounds awful. So this is the guy who Hoffa trusts with the keys, but mainly mm. on the basis that he is such a yes man that yeah. that I think the quotes are some stuff like, "Don't worry, Jimmy, the chair will be warm for you." When you yeah, get back. yeah, uh, yeah. Because you're not in a, you're not in the mood to take risks when you're on the way to jail. You're not in the mood to. Uh, have anything other than you know like a security blanket and it sounds like that's what this guy was for Hoffa absolutely he thought that he could just hand off the keys and then when the time came that his appeals would pan out and you know the truckers around the country will rally behind him mm-hmm. that Hoffa could come back and sit right back in that president's position mm-hmm. even despite that every single media outlet and businessman thought of him as a threat to the country and by this point in enemy within yeah and how long how long was he sentenced to so he was sentenced for a five-year term and an eight-year term 
which should have been served uh, concurrently, but instead they, the judges stacked them consecutively. So he had a total of a 13-year stint, uh, which when he started his prison sentence on March 2nd of 1967, meant that he would be done with prison, done with all of his jail term in 1980. Uh, did he have, was there a possibility? The uh, federal system doesn't have parole, right? Back then the federal system had parole. Uh-huh. So there was a possibility of parole starting as short as three years in. In 1970, there was mandatory release where he had to be released to see how he would do on parole in 1975. Uh, so at the very minimum, unless he like picked up a new offense, like trying to escape from prison or mm-hmm. something crazy like that, Hoffa would be out in 1975. Get to shank a guy, get <laughs> access to the phone. Yeah, unless something like that. Yeah. So on March 2nd, 1967, Hoffa is led away to Lewisburg Penitentiary, mm-hmm. and it's a televised event in which... For the cameras, has him shackled and brought in. And seeing this on the late night news, Hoffa's grandmother sees that and has a stroke. Oh. Just to add pain onto everything else. That's very Roman, right? They got the captured chieftain, and now they're marching him in chains uh, for for, uh, to gloat. Though I guess the one anachronism is they have helicopters following him just in case he escapes. Right, right. Though my yeah, my understanding is that uh, with the Roman those Roman triumphs, uh, the chieftains were were depending on the mood of the crowd and how the war went, whatever. The chieftains often uh, uh, and how they performed, right? They could kind of get the crowd on their side, like not not like oh we we wish you would beat in Rome, but like oh look at him, he's a he's a fine figure of a man. We we beat him and it's cool, uh, but you know we don't need to we don't need to like torture him or anything. A modern a modern tribute, a modern parade of the captured chieftain. Yeah. So next time, folks, we're gonna start with Hoffa in prison, but spoiler, he gets out. Yeah, he and he, he does uh, prison break, the the show, and he gets revenge. Well, yeah. he hopes to get revenge. Hoffa comes out to the world that he predicted, the crack up that he always feared was happening, the bottom falling out of the system. Till next time, folks. Bye-bye.